Let's talk about transgender malpractice on this episode of Pushback. If you're concerned about the direction our culture is heading, then maybe it's time to push back. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Pushback. I'm Dr. Johnny, and it is always my privilege and pleasure to come before you every week. I want to say right off the bat that parental discretion is advised for this podcast, and I really mean it. Uh, I'm going to go after... Uh, some pretty uh, potent stuff here in this podcast, and I want parents just to be warned. Um, I understand that even some teenagers uh, need to be part of this conversation. I will leave that to your discretion. Um, I, I said at the beginning that this is about transgender malpractice. The word malpractice is one of those words as a physician that uh, sends a shudder up your spine, um, so to speak. It's not a very pleasant word, uh, but it's the word that I'm going to use for this podcast very purposefully. Can I just share one thing before I get into that? Um, there is a young lady named Mariah who was our dear Lucy who uh, just passed away uh, just weeks ago. Um, and Mariah is 11 years old and was, was Lucy's aunt. And this is what she read at her memorial service. Um, this is what Mariah wrote and read at 11 years old. I got permission from her parents to read this. She wrote, Lucy died this morning, but I feel a weird peace about it. I know that she is running and dancing with God. Most people ask in a sad way, why is this happening to her? But we have it a little mixed up. What we should really ask is why isn't it happening to me? Why does Lucy get to go first? She belongs to God, and we all do, but God blessed us with her, and we got to see a little princess who God let be in our life. But now she is home. It is hard to explain. You just have to know and feel it. Lucy is out of pain and doing what she has been longing to do. God knows her sweet little heart and what she wants, and we shouldn't be praying for Lucy. She is in the safest place there is. We should be praying that we can rejoice in her blessing. She is home. How profound and wonderful is that? Those two paragraphs sum up my last two podcasts completely. And it's been my pleasure to share my heart with you. And I thank you for your overwhelming support in, in listening to my podcast these last couple of weeks. And obviously just to our family specifically. But it has left me with a new resolve you know, life is short for all of us. The Bible says it's a vapor. And so we have these moments in time. And I believe part of the reason the Lord put me here on this earth is to be a cultural cultural reformer and and to be able to speak about these issues. And, and, and we got a good one here today, one that certainly gets me fired up. You know, as a physician, you know, we um, are led by what's called the Hippocratic Oath. And some medical schools do them and some don't. Some are becoming more woke now and doing different ones and uh, who knows. But there is a modern medical ethics uh, that we do. I'm on the ethics committee at the hospital and these are the four tenets that we actually live by and, and try to work decisions through these filters. The four are autonomy, justice, 
non-maleficence, and beneficence. Those are big fancy words. Autonomy, meaning that people get to make their own decisions. Justice, we need to do the right thing at the right time. Non-maleficence, which means do no harm. And beneficence, that we should always be looking to benefit our patients. Those are the four pillars that form my practice, my profession, my career. And right now, when we talk about transgender medicine, when we talk about gender-affirming care, I am going to use the word embarrassed. I, I really don't like the word ashamed for a lot of different reasons that we don't have time to go into on this podcast. So I'm going to use the word embarrassed. I'm embarrassed by my profession. I am floored. I am outraged um, that my profession uh, is even entertaining this idea of gender affirming care. You know, it's crazy when you do a Google search, which I have in preparation for this podcast, you um, find that when you type in gender affirming care or what is gender affirming care, the first 20, 25 articles are all trying to defend it. It's all talking about misinformation <laughs> regarding what it is. You know, I feel so strongly about this, even in the, uh, the issue of abortion. You've heard me talk so many times about that, that the pe- people need to know what abortion is. You can't vote yes or no unless you know what it is. And so part of it is educating the populace, educating people, saying this is what abortion looks like. Well, the same is true for gender-affirming care. We can say, well, yeah, let's just support that. But if you don't know what it is, how can you say yes or no to it? I'd like to quickly read uh, portions of an article written by Dr. David Zittner, uh, MD. Uh, He is from the UK. And he's giving his perspective on on gender-affirming care for children. He said, doctors and parents need to rethink gender-affirming care for children. Uh, This was released on the National Post uh, back in October. Uh, Excellently written article. His subtitle is, experts are questioning subjecting young people to harmful, complicated, and often irreversible medical and surgical interventions. He says, while some members of such medical professional organizations as the American Academy of Pediatrics suggest that aggressive and clearly harmful medical and surgical interventions might be appropriate for trans children, many other doctors are increasingly and vocally expressing strong reservations. Experts such as transgender gynecologist Marcy Bowers, she's the president-elect of the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, and Erica Anderson, PhD, president of the United States Professional Association for Transgender Health, I didn't know there was such a thing, are raising serious doubts about the value of gender-affirming care for young people. These are the experts, these are the leaders of the experts. On the basis of little or no clinically proven evidence, this is a key sentence to this whole article, children are being subjected to immediately harmful, complicated, and often irreversible medical and surgical interventions. And at exactly the same time that alarm bells are being rung, the number of young people now receiving gender-affirming care leading to transitions are skyrocketing. Let me reemphasize little or no clinically proven evidence. Since when do we, as a profession, practice with little or no proven evidence? 
Sex reassignment is not a benign medical procedure. Hormones and puberty blockers influence growth and development, and trans people are subject to a documented increase in the risk of various illnesses. To choose just one example particularly relevant to young transitioners, the euphemistically named puberty blockers, more revealingly described by their correct name, chemical castrators, are too readily available in Canada, virtually on demand, when a minor indicates interest in gender identity questions. These drugs are associated with such serious conditions as early onset osteoporosis. Furthermore, since the use of these drugs as puberty blockers is an off-label use, it is important to understand that no proper clinical trials have been carried out on this use of these drugs. Claims that they are inoffensive and that their effects are perfectly reversible at any time are not borne out by the information we have about their effects, especially on young people whose bodies are still in development. This gets me outraged. I'm sorry if I'm shouting at you. In the absence of such evidence, how can parents and children make sensible decisions? And given the politicization of these issues, not least by poorly defined conversion therapy bans, many medical professions are reluctant to inform young patients fully of risks or to suggest counseling for fear of failing afoul of such falling afoul of such legislation. Yet medical professions, professionals and regulators should fully expect that detransitioners, those who regret their transition, will be angry and will want to hold to account a medical establishment that refused to inform them fully about the uncertainty of risks and benefits. This paragraph is outrageous. My friends, everything that we do, whether I'm pulling off a toenail in the emergency room, needs consent. Needs to, I need to tell people what are the risks and the benefits. Doctors aren't even giving these kids who aren't even fully developed the full understanding of risks and benefits or the irreversibility of what they're about to do. And they are still performing this medic, these medical procedures anyway. Massive class action lawsuits are now expected to be filed against the clinic for failure to respect their professional duties to their patients. One of the lawyers involved, Barrister Thomas Goodhead, is quoted as saying the case is going to become one of the largest medical negligence scandals of all time. I don't ever wish to curse anybody or speak badly, but good for them. I hope that the doctors that are willing to go outside of standard medical procedure by giving informed consent and following scientifically clinically proven studies, those doctors need to be held accountable to the full extent. They get slapped with malpractice lawsuits, go for it. Yet the very medical professionals that should be asking these searching questions like I just did and standing up for their members' duty to ensure that their young patients' interests are fully protected are trying very hard to suppress discussion of these issues and preventing their members from hearing dissenting views about gender-affirming care. What is going on here? And oh, by the way, as I read before, this idea that detransitioners may change their mind. A recent study has just come out that has shown that 80% of those suffering from gender confusion, this clears by the time that they're age 18. 80% most likely will change their mind by the time they're 18. Here's an important paragraph. Curiously, Outside the politicized area of gender-affirming care, physicians and regulators are themselves cautious 
and ambivalent about the use of even small amounts of hormones to influence function and appearance. Men wishing to take testosterone to improve their appearance or athletic performance will have difficulty obtaining steroids from a doctor. Why? The medical establishment feels that even low doses of testosterone used for body sculpting might be harmful. I'm shouting at you again. I'm sorry. Think of the lunacy of this. Women asking for estrogens are warned about the increased risk of cancer and, and cardiovascular disease. This is real. We already know the effects. And yet we're going to shield this. We're going to hide this. We're going to suppress discussion. Parents and doctors should, should support and respect children who claim they are different gender from the ones that they are born with, while understanding that that does not simply mean acquiescing uncritically in every demand for immediate transition. Professionals and parents should also be clear that some, but not all, people regret invasive and permanent transition treatments. Thus, proxies, like parents, ought not to make such decisions, and the child should wait until adulthood and insist on the fullness and latest information before deciding to transition. It just seems like common sense, doesn't it? There is so much out there about this right now, and I'm just floored by it. And here is the root of the lunacy of this, and I have tremendous perspective about this, is that they are forming these hormonal and surgical treatments based on feelings. I have many podcasts about feelings, about how feelings are driving the day. But let me be very clear. When we're talking about estrogen, testosterone, uh, hormonal manipulation, and puberty blockers, hormonal castrators, you have to understand too that there are surgical interventions that are taking place today in young people, in children, where breasts are removed, hysterectomies and oophorectomies, which is the removal of the ovaries, are taking place, where testicles are removed and scrotums are removed. My friends, these are surgical procedures that don't get to become reversible. These are being implemented and subjected to children in our society. And my medical profession is going along with this. They need to be the ones. First, do no harm. I have a question for you. I have a question to my fellow physicians who are brazenly moving forward with gender-affirming care. Here's my question. How do you feel about suicide? What is your stance on suicide? See, suicide is also based on feelings. Every day, practically every shift, I have somebody coming into my emergency department with concerned family members about them feeling suicidal. So what should be my response? Should I normalize those feelings as a physician? Should I, should I coddle that? Should I accommodate that? Should I have people give them a little bit of a space to, to, to respond to their feelings? Should we remove the parents from the room and not listen to what they have to say and their concerns about suicide? Actually, what happens is when somebody comes into my emergency department, we care deeply when somebody says they're suicidal. In fact, the alarm sound, and we surround them instantly with safety measures. 
We have them change their clothes. We put nothing in the room in which they can harm themselves. And we start mobilizing resources on their behalf. We don't accommodate it. We treat it. We put resources around them to bring healing to their feelings. Now that should just blow our mind, I say sarcastically. That maybe their feelings are misleading them. Maybe their feelings are taking them down a harmful path, a harmful road. And isn't it our place, isn't it our duty as physicians to come alongside them and try to bring healing, try to put resources around them so that they no longer feel suicidal? Why not just let them express their feelings by killing themselves? Because this, I can promise you, they will quote unquote feel better. Who are we to impose a 72-hour hold on somebody who comes in and says that they feel suicidal? Who are, who are we to impose our views on their feelings? See, we see death as permanent, as irreversible. We see young people as vulnerable, not fully decisional. not Their brain isn't fully developed. They're, they're being moved and manipulated by hormones, dopamine, and serotonin, some of the things that are making them feel depressed, making them feel lost, making them feel hopeless, making them feel suicidal. So should that be our next most appropriate response? Is that where we're heading as a society? It's, it's an incredibly powerful analogy because the people that are suffering from from gender dysphoria are feeling down. They're feeling depressed. They're feeling hopeless. They're feeling trapped. They're feeling lost. And we're just coddling it and saying, this is normal. Let us go ahead and remove your scrotum because you will feel better. That's what everybody's citing. When you click on one of those 25 Google searches that's defending it, they're saying that, that what, what clinicians are seeing is that the people are starting to feel better about themselves after they have their breasts and their uterus removed. They're feeling better about themselves. Well, that implies two different things. One is that they can actually prove that. And number two is that they are so miserable to begin with that they're just looking for some type of improvement. And instead, they're getting irreversible damage and their body is being subjected to malpractice. So let's talk. Let's just talk. Let's just be raw here for a second. This is about sexuality. This is this is sexual. That's what this is really about. See. There's a move by the culture to have children become more sexual, even before puberty. They need to be educated about their sex and their sexual orientation and their sexual attractions. This is about sex. And why is that true? Why is it important in our culture? And, and this might hit you between the eyes, and I'm sorry about this. This is my opinion. It's because there is a demand for children to be more sexual. I have a question for you. Why is child sex trafficking a problem all across the world, including the United States? And the answer is, is because there is a demand for it. How perverted and twisted is that? And because there's a demand for it, let's try to sexualize our children. Let's try to make, make children more sexual earlier to meet the demand. 
There is something more sinister at play, and they don't want parents to be involved in the decision. And this is why. It's because there's something more sinister at play. See, we have no business talking to children about sex or treating, or treating children's feelings. Now, I say that's true for every human being. I would say it's true for parents. It's definitely true for my profession, for physicians. It's malpractice. There's a subplot to this that I'll talk about on some other podcast. The ones that are being hurt, not only are these children and, and adults, in my opinion, being subjected to transgender medicine, but children in general and women in general are being hurt big time. And part of this point of this podcast is not just for me to be mad and shake my hands all around. It's to give you talking points. When transgender men are competing against women in sports, guess who gets hurt? It's women. Children are being hurt. This is what's happening. This is our talking point. Is those who are getting injured. We as a society are the protectors. We are the ones as adults are the protectors of our children. We are the protectors of women and their rights as well as they're being trampled. In the time left, I just want to read Romans 1 because the Bible has a way of calming me down. <laughs> Romans 1.18, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. To 24. Therefore, God gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. So powerful. And worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a deprived mind so that they do not so that they do what ought not to be done although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death they not only continue to do these very things but also approve of those who practice them this is what the bible predicted would happen now i could leave it there i could leave it there but we have to go on and read Romans chapter 2, verse 1. You, therefore, the ones who are reading this, the Christians, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. I think that's called malpractice. <laughs> that's called Christian malpractice. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. 
So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Those last two lines are significant. Oh Lord, I pray that I would never show contempt for the riches of your kindness, for your forbearance towards me, and for your patience towards me, as I do sinful and wicked things as well. And I need to realize always that even when I do, it leads me to that beautiful word called repentance, where our hearts are turned and our minds are changed and we position ourselves towards you and your righteousness. Lord, I pray that I can sit on that seat of appreciating who you are, your grace and mercy towards me. At the same time, being a defender of justice, at the same time, being a being uh, someone who stands up for our culture, cares for our culture, and fights for our culture. I will always stand up for children, born or unborn. That's who we are. That's who he's called us to be. Lord, I pray that we can be all of those things. So let's do that together as we go now to set and shape the culture. Thank you.